Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Kate Kimaladun. This week, we are presenting a special series of speakers from the 2022 Camden Conference. The Camden Conference convenes annually to bring a variety of diplomats, professors, journalists, and political officials to address a topic of international political and humanitarian significance. For the 35th Camden Conference, the topic was Europe Challenged at Home and Abroad. This program was pre-recorded on Friday, February 25th, 2022 for broadcast at this time. Today we bring you the keynote speaker Stavros Lambernidis, ambassador of the European Union to the United States, former foreign affairs minister of Greece and former European special representative for human rights. Introducing Ambassador Lambernidis today is host and senior editor of Marketplace Morning Report, David Brancaccio. We have the honor tonight of opening the conference with a keynote address by the most senior representative of the European Union and its 27 member countries in Washington. Stavros Lambertidis is the ambassador of the European Union to the United States and has a distinguished and fascinating career at the center of challenges and decisions that Europe has faced since the 1980s. A native of Greece, Ambassador Lambertidis has particular interest in human rights, privacy, technology, and trade issues. He's been Greece's Minister of Foreign Affairs and has a two, is a third-term member and senior leader of the European Parliament. He's also head of the International Olympic Truce Center, a collaboration between Greece and the International Olympic Committee. He also knows his way around the Massachusetts Turnpike and I-95 corridor and our special relationship with seafood here in New England. You see, Ambassador Lambertidis is a graduate of Amherst, College and went to Yale Law School. Ambassador Lambertidis, welcome to the Cameron Conference. We're primed for your views on a defining set of issues of relevance at this hour that will no doubt resonate for years to come. Your title, What is the Role of Transatlantic Diplomacy in Saving Democracy, the Global Economy, and the World's Climate? Ambassador, the stage is yours. Thank you. Thank you, David, for this introduction. Much appreciated. And thank you, Karen. Uh, And uh, thank you, Charlotte, as well. Uh, What an honor to be at the Camden Conference. Now, I understand you're trying to put a good face on the fact that we're doing this virtually. But I'll tell you, diplomacy is a contact sport. And for the past two years, I haven't been able to contact sport myself, uh, you know, with people and shake hands and uh, and, uh, look people in the eye and have conversations that are not just transactional, just getting the job done, just giving the speech. So, would I have liked to be up in your snowed out, uh, you know, uh, uh, conference up in Maine? You betcha. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, maybe it's an opportunity for me to, uh, to welcome you to the EU residence here in Washington, D.C. You can see a little bit, uh, a little bit of, it, of it around and, uh, and maybe I'll get the chance to host you here to thank you for this. To thank you for this on the, on the 35th year, if I understand, of the, of the, of the Camden Conference. And congratulations to you and happy birthday. And, uh, and uh, certainly congratulations for getting all these students, giving them the opportunity to come and to be with, uh, with us today uh, without having to pay any fees or do anything like that. So that's really absolutely fantastic. Good, good on you. Now, um, you know, uh, crises, we, 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 we go through many of them in the past years. Uh, they have defined us. Uh, and uh, in some ways, the crises of the past years have highlighted uh, more than anything else the indispensability of the European Union-United States relationship. They also have highlighted, as Karen mentioned, uh, the indispensability of an international rules-based system that can help countries of all different corners of the world, cultures, religions, sizes, economic developments, to address those crises together. And as we face the crisis of today, I have to say, and this is sort of my umbrella concern, that the international system itself is under attack. Uh, That uh, the tenants that were built after the Second World War uh, intended to uh, glorify the individual's right uh, to human dignity against the abuse of power by governments, uh, the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world. Um, That system is under attack today by governments 
who want to claim that sovereignty belongs to them, not to human beings, not to individuals. It's a flipping the international legal order on its head. And I will close those remarks by mentioning why I think this is the case. But I mentioned we are defined by crises. So here are the five ones that, in my view, are the most important. Of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine crisis today. Uh, the second one is, of course, the COVID crisis that we've had the past two years, two years. I'm almost coming to the two-year anniversary of having had to uh, close my embassy in D.C. Well, let's say it's open since, but never 100%. So I hope that we'll be able to open soon 100% again. Third, indeed, the climate crisis. Uh, fourth, I would say the economic uh, recovery crisis, the new challenge that we all face about what economies and how we're going to promote for our, for our citizens, for our people in the 21st century. And fifth, of course, as I mentioned, the, the yep. democracy and the, and the values crisis. So let me jump into each, each one of them, say a little bit about the relationship. And I hope then the questions and answers we can get, uh, we can get much more um, uh, uh, deep in any of those things if, 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 uh, if your audience is interested. So let me start with the Ukraine crisis. What is it fundamentally? It is Putin's and autocrats' uh, unilateral attempt to tear up international law and the international legal order and the international security order, the European security order, as we've known it since the Second World War and then since the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, whether it is uh, the UN Charter itself or whether it is uh, European uh, security architecture agreements, such as the Helsinki Final Act, uh, or such as the uh, Paris Agreements, or such as the Minsk Agreements. Uh, the Minsk Agreements, keep in mind, were signed by Putin himself. Uh, all those he is trying unilaterally to throw out the window and to create a new security architecture in which spheres of influence of the 19th century are what counts, not international law, in which strong countries have the right to impose their will on weaker ones, and in which, in fact, the independence of countries or citizens in them is entirely irrelevant if it doesn't drive with the power desires of the strong in the world, in this particular case uh, in, uh, in, um, uh, in Europe. Now, where do they want to go with this? Uh, we'll have to wait and see. My prediction is that they do want to get rid of the government in Ukraine and of Zelensky. Uh, they most likely do wish to create a confederation between them and Belarus and Ukraine, um, tying those two countries inexorably to the Russian, uh, you know, um, uh, sphere of influence, uh, and then uh, potentially move on uh, with equivalent aggression to other countries in the region, uh, and potentially even uh, to European countries. So this is serious, and. This raises the question, why do we care? And why should the United States care? Well, Europe cares because this is existential. Uh, many of our member states, European member states, members of NATO as well, uh, were under Soviet domination for decades. For them, the 1990s were, were a, uh, an extremely hopeful, as Karen said, period of freedom and openness and independence. Independence, because they are different people, they have different cultures, they have a pride in their country uh, and in their independent countries. And what is happening now for us, therefore, constitutes uh, an existential threat. And because of that, we will not let Mr. Putin win. We cannot. But the exact same thing applies to the United States in many ways. Why is this existential for the United States? Why do people see Americans and Europeans, the U.S. administration and Europe, the European Union's member states, on the phone virtually every day? Why did we coordinate sanctions so effectively against Russia? And there's more to come if Russia continues and escalates even more. It is because, well, the biggest, strongest, most... Uh, impressive military alliance in the world, NATO, is being directly threatened openly by Mr. Putin. And if the number two or number three 
big military power in the world can rub its nose in the number one military power in the world, then it's going to be open game for everyone. And this cannot be allowed to happen. I would also answer the question why this matters to the United States with another question. What do you think America would have done if back in 1945 we knew what the USSR really was or would really mean? We would have let Mr. Stalin with his aggression go on? Would we have allowed the Iron Curtain to go up if we knew back then what creating the Soviet Union would mean for our security and for our prosperity for decades to come? The dangers, the threats, the nuclear fears? We didn't know back then, but we know now. And what Mr. Putin is trying to do is precisely to build the old Soviet Union under a Russia hat. And this is extremely, extremely dangerous. So how are we dealing with this crisis? How are we fighting it? Well, first of all, certainly preparing militarily and sending a message as NATO, as European Union, as United States to Mr. Putin that if he threatens an inch of NATO territory, he will face the full force and wrath of our military power. And in that sense, let me tell your audience that we in Europe are extremely aware of our obligation to be able to be a huge force behind NATO. NATO is not just the United States. It's 30 countries. And many of them, the majority of them, countries of the European Union. So in the past few years, we have embarked in a massive effort to fortify our collective defense and to create as well in Europe the conditions for European countries that are independent in defense to be able to deploy more together, to invest more together, to create military capabilities that are the highest in the world and to fight together. This European effort has sometimes been termed uh, strategic autonomy. And it has created in some people the anxiety that Europe is trying to decouple from NATO. And nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, in Greece, where I come from, we have an army. It's a very big army because Turkey is across the pond. But we don't have a separate army that is a NATO army. The Greek army is at the same time the NATO army. And so is the German army and the French army. If European armies can be more efficient, not just better funded, more efficient, more powerful, more advanced, then this is something that will strengthen NATO beyond anything else that we could possibly do. And we're engaged in this. Now, when it comes to Ukraine, the second thing that we're doing is creating massive economic costs for Russia. You may have seen the announcements of sanctions yesterday and today in the EU and a couple of days ago, together, Americans, Europeans, Brits, Canadians. These sanctions were very well coordinated in advance because we knew what Russia was planning to do. We were not fooled. And you know this from our announcements throughout that we expected it would try to invade. But these sanctions fundamentally will change the economic outlook for Russia, both immediately and most importantly, in the medium and longer term. And if you ask me why does that matter, given the fact that right now we have an invasion, my answer to you is because it's a long road and it's a long game. And because when Putin invades, he has to balance all the costs and benefits he thinks will accrue to him. Personally, he doesn't care about the Russian people that much. I'm afraid to say, I don't mean to sound flippant about this, but that's what autocrats usually do. It will change his economic and his cost-benefit analysis. Russia will be cut off from 50% of the world's high-tech, including semiconductors, that only Americans and Europeans produce and that are crucial 
for Russia's economy to enter the 21st century. He will be stuck with gas and oil, and he will be truly struggling to modernize his economy, in which gas and oil in 10 or 20 years' time will be virtually irrelevant. His banks will not be able to access our financial markets, the biggest in the world, and in fact, their assets, the vast majority of them, will be frozen immediately. Russia will not be able to finance its own debt in Europe or the U.S. or in any way that touches upon dollars or euros or yens or British pounds. It is a major, major economic blow for them. When it comes to um, individuals, today we announced that we are sanctioning personally Mr. Putin and Mr. Lavrov. And of course, again, in coordination with the U.S. administration, the U.S. president announced that the U.S. will be doing the same. But there is a vast number of oligarchs and others who are supporting this repression and who are benefiting financially from it that are going to be majorly hit. And let me tell you, when I saw yesterday Mr. Putin having one of these stage meetings, uh, this time with a bunch of oligarchs around him, uh, acting like uh, this is going to be okay, I immediately knew that he knew it's not going to be okay. It is the kind of classic Soviet show for the, for the masses. I immediately knew that they knew they would be in trouble. And if you look at the Russian stock market yesterday, or the value of the of the ruble, or uh, you know the uh, the sovereign debt um, uh, interest rates they have to pay, uh, that skyrocketed. You realize that all of this has immediate immediate effects. Now, uh, but I'm happy to discuss this. At the same time, as we're talking money, the Ukrainian economy is suffering massively. Part of Putin's plan was to achieve exactly that by stationing those two hundred thousand troops for so many months next to Ukraine to create the chaos and the economic uncertainty that would make the Ukrainian economy collapse. So we Europeans have come out with a major billion and a half euro package to support immediately through microfinancial assistance the, the Ukrainian economy so it can stand on its feet. And the U.S. as well, again, in coordination, has announced another billion dollars. We will not allow Putin's bullying to risk the stability of the Ukrainian economy, which is, of course, suffering major headwinds. Don't get me wrong. But we are there to make sure that it survives this onslaught. And let me just say as well that we're also focusing on humanitarian assistance to the people of Ukraine today. You know, a few days ago, before the recognition of the independence of the secessionist parts of Ukraine by Putin, uh, People were already packing their bags in the, the, the front doors, ready to escape, uh, you know, a potential attack, which, of course, came. There is a lot of uh, not just simply anger, hatred towards Putin, but a lot of suffering that many people, in addition to psychological suffering, will be facing in the next days and months because of this invasion and because of the displacement largely displacing within Ukraine. So we are ready to support with all our humanitarian might those people and also to receive and to support Ukrainians who escape the violence uh, and, uh, and uh, end up in, uh, in Europe. Finally, I would say we have to address Russia's disinformation narratives, and we knew this from the beginning. This is not just simply a military war. Russia has been using this information to demoralize, to confuse, to divide, and it hoped to conquer. And it failed miserably. Ukraine is an independent country of proud, independent people, 90% of whom, Russian speaking or not, 30 years ago voted for their independence from Russia. 90%. It is not a non-existent country that was created by Lenin. The insult that Putin has added to the injury that he has brought to Ukraine is entirely unacceptable. He mythologized it. 
Ukrainians and NATO were not threatening Russia ever. Never a plan to attack Russia, let alone from Ukraine that had no and still has no offensive weapons. Ukraine didn't have a single weapon back in 2014 when Putin took over Crimea. That was after the color revolution. That was after Maidan. And that was after Ukrainian citizens with European flags in the street were saying nothing more than we feel Europeans. There was no military threat. Mr. Putin invented it. And of course, Ukrainians are not committing genocide against um, Russian speakers. They're not a bunch of Nazis. In the radio show that I had with main radio, one of the listeners asked me, well, stated an opinion that Mr. Putin had a right to fight against Nazis and against fascists in Ukraine that had taken over the Ukrainian government. It was precisely the argument that Mr. Putin, you know, uses. And I was first a little surprised that these arguments can reach as far, uh, you know, away from uh, the Kremlin as, uh, you know, the United States and the Eastern Shores. But I had the chance to answer this. How many people here know that President Zelensky of Ukraine is Jewish? How many people here know that the right wing, because every country has fascists, the United States has Nazi sympathizers. In Europe, we have them. How many people know that in the last election, the right wing, extreme right wing party in Ukraine got only 6.4% of the vote? Well, I'll tell you, if the Ukrainians are fascists and Nazis, they have a fantastically smart way of hiding the ball. But this is the kind of fight we have to keep giving. Now, dear friends, it's very tempting to stick on Ukraine. But I mentioned four other crises, and I want to go through them because they're supremely important. COVID. COVID was a global crisis, if ever there was one. And in Europe, we realized this virtually immediately after it hit. The word virtually is important. In the first couple of weeks, we were scrambling each of our 27 countries separately to procure the masks and the ventilators and everything else we needed. Because, in fact, under the European system, health is a national competence. Don't be confused. Many people don't know what Europe is. I should be giving a speech just on what Europe is for many people. But it's really not particularly different from the United States. I mean, you are a federal system. We are more of a confederation. But fundamentally, we are 27 countries who have decided to pool our sovereignty together and to give to Brussels, to our central government, if you like, a number of exclusive powers and to keep for us, the states, a number of others. It is really not that different in concept. The biggest, and I'll get to that later, power that we gave to Brussels was over the economy and over trade, the creation of the single market. But health remained in member states. And we realized very quickly that that wouldn't work, that COVID was decapitating us, and that if we were to be going around the world, you know, um, fighting with each other, who's going to get the more masks? Most of our smaller member states would lose out immediately, and the others would be paying astronomical prices. So we got together and we said, okay, we will pool our power, give it all to the European Commission. The European Commission will procure masks with one contract for all of us from around the world. And guess what happened? Because the purchase was so huge, we managed to get those masks really fast and to support our people. And then as Europeans, we said, we will not come out of this unless we're able to create the vaccines and the therapeutics and unless we do it real fast. And unless we distribute them all over the world, and unless they're effective. Because at the time that COVID hit, this battle between the narratives, democracy versus autocracy, it also came to the front, with China in particular telling the world that it's authoritarians that can do this better than Democrats can. Isn't that amazing? 
And so we contributed more funds to create the vaccines than anyone else in the world. And the big success of that was transatlantic. Pfizer, a U.S. company run by a Greek, by the way, <laughs> Albert Bourla, and BioNTech, a German company run by Turks, German Turks, by the way, were the first to develop the mRNA vaccine. And we were saved. When I say we, I mean, to a large extent, of course, citizens of the U.S. and Europe. But the vaccination rates are different. In Europe, more than 83% of Europeans are fully vaccinated, triple vaccinated even. In the U.S., the numbers are lower. And when you go to the rest of the world, you see many countries vaccinated with vaccines that have proven to be entirely ineffective or largely ineffective, including China and Russia. And you see other countries, poorer countries, that have not gotten vaccines almost at all. And so we led the way to ensure the vaccines through COVAX, all these international initiatives, international cooperation, international cooperation, I mentioned at the beginning, could get to all these countries. And we have committed, it's a very difficult fight, that we're actually going to get those vaccines to those countries, at least 70% of the people, we hope, by the end of this year. Okay. COVID never became a political issue in Europe. Maybe that explains why the vaccination rates are high. I'd be more interested to hear from you why you think that it became such a political issue in the United States. Because we followed the science immediately. And we realized from the right to the left in Europe that we had to wear those masks and that we had to get those vaccines in our arms. We have deniers in Europe as well, it goes without saying. But the numbers are much lower, and the crazy about it is only now perhaps coming a little bit to the forefront more, because after two years, people are getting tired. Let's be, let's be serious about this. But we managed to fortify ourselves, and we focused on fortifying the world. Third challenge, well, trade, economy, especially post-COVID. Dear friends, America and Europe the U.S. and the EU are the biggest economic artery in the world by far, by far. Together, we're close to 50% of world GDP. We are close to 43% of the trade in goods and services in the world, in the world. Outside of whatever it is that we do internally, the U.S. government, Europe, the European governments, the European Commission, we are the biggest prosperity providers to each other. People are used to knowing that NATO is the biggest security provider to each other. But they never think or rarely think that it is our economic relationship that provides prosperity to each other more than anything else. About 15 million jobs across the Atlantic are created every year by the trade and investment that our companies make on each other's shores. European companies here create about 7 million jobs in the States. And we are investing close to 55%, close to 50% to 60% of all foreign investment in this country comes from EU member states. Because your economy is open and strong and our companies are advanced, supremely advanced and strong and they can do so. And American companies are creating an equivalent number of jobs in Europe, and they're making more money in Europe and more profits than they do anywhere else in the world. Anywhere else in the world combined. Isn't that amazing? If you consider that we think that China is such a big economy. Chinese investment in this country is one one hundredth of European investment, by the way. This didn't happen in spite of the European Union. It happened because of it. I told you before about the single market. You know, many times when I speak to Americans, I get this uh, sense. People are polite usually because it's the European ambassador, so we have to be nice. But eventually, when it comes down to it, isn't Europe just a terrible bureaucracy with a bunch of bureaucrats regulating all the time, uh, you know, not allowing the market to flourish, not allowing for all the innovation flowers to bloom? Aren't you just these terrible bureaucrats? 
And my answer to that is, you know, think again. We are the biggest deregulation experiment in the world. We took the laws and regulations of 28 countries when the UK was in still, and we trashed them. And we replaced them with only one set of rules and regulations, which was a very, very difficult adjustment process, of course, for our member states. They were not all at the same level of economic development or of laws. They had to adjust to the so-called European acquis. And that allowed us to, to break down all the borders in Europe for goods, for services, for capital, for people. And we became the biggest, most open, single, democratic, competitive market in the world of 450 million of the most prosperous consumers in the world. That's what has made our firm so competitive and able to invest in this country. And that is why European, uh, American um, uh, CEOs and American workers every day vote with their feet and come to Europe. Now, that economy has to be protected as we move out of COVID. And the question is, how do we achieve that best? And my answer to that is, we work together as Americans and Europeans to address major challenges. One challenge, where do we go with um, dealing with China and some fair trade practices around the world? How do we ensure that our companies around the world can compete fairly and uh, be able to get uh, the uh, international infrastructure investments that they can do best without creating debt traps. That is a foreign investment connectivity challenge that we are now working together on, ensuring that we have the financing in place, the risk mitigation in place for our companies, but also the ability to identify together major investments, including strategic investments that cannot fall into the wrong hands. A second question is, what do we do with artificial intelligence and other standard setting? People very often don't talk about this. But you know what? As we speak today, artificial intelligence is being weaponized. And it's being developed. And in Xinjiang, in China today, uh, voice recognition and face recognition and cameras and all those things are being used for a very specific purpose, to repress people. That technology can do that if those standards prevail. Or we bake in that technology, Americans and Europeans, and just for us, for the rest of the world, different standards. So we have gotten together in what we call the Trade and Technology Council, Americans and Europeans, and we are dealing with these challenges. And we are dealing with the challenge of semiconductor supply chains and other supply chains, because COVID exposed the fact that we rely too much on others for those. And that is something that as well will bring more prosperity and security, but also more values to the world. Dear friends, in our containers every day, we do not just put our goods. Those you can see. We also put our values, those you can't. Respect for labor rights when we produce our goods. We do not pollute the environment when we produce our goods. We have open competition in our economies where the best ideas and innovations win. We don't have state footprints on the markets. These are our values. And you know what? Increasingly, other countries, such as China, are putting their own values in their own containers. And these things go around the world. Do not be fooled. It's not just about money. It is about values. And climate, fourth major challenge. It's changing. Unless we stop it, the world will be in an absolutely catastrophic situation. Multitude of times worse than COVID could ever imagine on bringing on us. And it's happening in front of our eyes with the floods and the fires. But yes, as opposed to COVID, it doesn't hit you today and you're dead in a week. So it's taken a tremendous amount of effort, including political effort, to bring the world together. And Americans and Europeans, again, did this during the Paris Agreement. When the U.S. left the Paris Agreement under the previous administration, that was a catastrophic and misguided move. And when it returned now under this administration, that was supremely important. We already worked together in COP26 in Glasgow to bring more than 100 countries 
on a pledge to stop methane emissions and leaks. And that will in and of itself change dramatically the way that heat is captured in the atmosphere. But when I talk about climate, and I see my time is running out, so I want to be very quick here. I'm also talking about energy and geostrategy and jobs. Europe is determined that coming out of COVID, we will invest massively on climate investments and innovation and on tech investments and innovation. That is the way to the future. We are already creating the jobs in Europe that were unimaginable because we are at the forefront of that climate innovation in our technologies all over the world. About 80% of all offshore wind that you see is produced, innovated in Europe. At the same time, we also want to make sure that we leave no one behind because this transition, which will save us as Europe, and will save the world and the planet. The planet will save the planet. You know, the planet doesn't care about human beings, by the way. It exists for billions of years before us. It will exist for, for billions of years after us. It will probably suffer a climate change and will survive. It will change. We will die. And our children, our grandchildren. It's not the, the planet. It's fine. So, but also, when we talk climate, we also talk energy. And that is the long game with Russia as well. Europe, as opposed to the U.S., doesn't have gas and oil reserves. We get about 35% of our needs from Russia today. This is going to end because of a massive commitment right now to invest in those new technologies. This is geostrategic. And America and Europe met together. We have what we call an energy council. We met together and we discussed how we will do this together with the administration and with business. These two, these things go hand in hand. Okay, dear friends, now I'm seeing uh, some seconds. <laughs> so I will not go uh, in any detail in the, uh, in, the, in, in the final thing, other than to say, um, perhaps, uh, when it comes, and I can, I can talk about this in the, in the questions and, uh, and answers, that we have to defend our own democracies uh, because they are also in trouble. Uh, and they're not in trouble from the authoritarians that are creating the problems around the world. They're in trouble because we haven't nurtured them. In Europe, we had issues in the past few years with, with some of our member states not respecting the European treaties and what we are founded on, the rule of law and, uh, and, uh, and, all, and all these values. And the European Parliament, the European Commission took these um, uh, measures against, uh, against this, uh, these countries, including going to the European Court of Justice. We didn't shy away. We didn't shy away. The court could have said we were wrong. It hasn't. But I mention this because people were saying it was the time of Brexit. My God, do you really want to get into this mess now? You know, just taking other European countries to court when Brexit may happen, or even opening the door to the potential dissolution of the EU. And my answer to that was, and everyone answers that was, you know what? We are not a money enterprise. We're a values enterprise. If we lose our values, if as Europeans we lose the value of solidarity and democracy, we're done. So no, we will not be afraid. We will stand by those values. Now, not making any comparisons uh, with the U.S., well, I'll tell you, we're still having a battle, by the way. We're not done. It's not over. Populism is, 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 is all over. But in Europe, we see populism dissipating quite rapidly, especially after we dealt with the uh, migration crisis and the um, uh, COVID crisis as effectively as, as we did. In the U.S., I was, an, I, I was an ambassador here since 2019. January 6 shocked me and shocked Europeans to our core as much as it shocked many Americans. I gave an interview the next day in some television station and said, you know what, I think that America had a heart attack on January 6th. It didn't die. It had a heart attack. Since then, I mean, usually if you have a heart attack, you know, your doctor tells you, you know, get off the raw meat, you know, just have some more vegetables, figure out a way to do things, stop smoking, whatever, right? Since then, the impression I'm getting is that some people 
in this country are still committed to eating more steak tartare and smoking more cigars. This is a real issue for all of us, Americans and Europeans, because as we are discussing, the Chinese and the Russians, through violence and through a while and through economic coercion, are trying to turn the rest of the world against us. And they're trying to bring them to their own sphere of influence, their own values. And that's not okay. So, and I close with this. Financial crises, migration crises, Brexit, COVID. After every one of these crises, the European Union became stronger. Even though everyone was predicting that this was, would be finally the end of us. You go today and you poll people all over Europe, their approval rating of the EU is higher than ever before, in spite of this country crisis, or maybe because of them. Maybe because it gives us the chance to address them with determination and effectiveness. So the transatlantic relationship during the Russian crisis, boy, was Putin counting on dividing and conquerors. And he failed dramatically if that was his gamble. NATO and EU relationship is stronger than ever before. US and, e and EU relationship is stronger than ever before. The US commitment to NATO is stronger than ever before. They failed dramatically. This is one of the most unpleasant and dangerous crises of our generation. But if we handle it, Americans and Europeans, with the determination, the strength, and the commitment that I know that we can, I am not worried. I am not worried. So thank you so much for this opportunity. And sorry for taking a few more minutes. No, it was the, it was the perfect length, uh, Ambassador Lemonidas. And we're getting some wonderful questions from the audience. I'm going to start asking them on behalf of our audience. Please keep them coming in, members of the audience. Include your hometown. Um, really wise things, as you'll as, as you'll see. Uh, let me just ask one question first. Help, help me understand this a little bit. You mentioned that the EU has coming up with one and a half billion dollars to help Ukraine's economy, and the U.S. you know something in the billion dollars. Uh, yeah, at the moment, the democratically elected government is still seemingly in control of the country. But what do we do with that money? if that no longer becomes clear, which could happen in a matter of days? Well, we have to look, we, we have to look at this. But fundamentally, this is not money to, to, to support any particular government, although it certainly is intended to support the government of, of, of Zelensky. It's also money that will prevent any, the economy to collapse with dire consequences on the people of Ukraine, uh, who um, you know, are, are very much fanatically opposed to Putin in the, in the vast majority. So uh, we'll cross that bridge if, you get, if we get to it. But, but this is uh, almost like humanitarian aid, um, a, an attempt to make sure that the people of Ukraine, not some particular bank or banker or company, um, uh, you know, uh, can weather this economic storm. One of our uh, members of the audience, his name is Gus. He's from the town of Trenton, Maine. Gus um, sounds Greek, I have to say. I don't know if Gus is Greek, but... Uh, <laughs> Could be, could be, right? Um, he's uh, got an important question. It's about, can you speak about how EU and U.S. sanctions will impact Russia's relationship with China? Uh, you know, there's some concern that, uh, that our sanctions could, um, could help the bond between Russia and China. It's a great question. I'm concerned about this bond, and it goes beyond economics. Um, but we see potentially in, in economics as well. Um, David, I, I can go to a long uh, answer, but I won't. Um, when it comes to the high technologies and other things that the Russian economy and military needs in order to be able to advance, including the Russian space program and all that stuff, China simply does not have the technology to give Russia that we will be cutting off from Russia. Um, when it comes to uh, the financial system and banks uh, that they are hoping uh, to be able to tap into, their big companies and uh, state-owned or uh, private companies or their banks, um, 
China is a potential substitute, but because so many of these transactions are taking place in dollars or euros or pounds, and that's what Russia is holding them, if there's any touch that they do with a dollar or a euro in any attempt that they try, including through China, that automatically will be sanctioned. So we expect that we will limit considerably, substantially, but not eliminate the capacity, of course, to do transactions. And when it comes to gas and oil, which quite apart from whether or not they will cut it or not at some point towards Europe, or they will try to use it to weaponize it towards Europe, and we are quite well prepared to mitigate that risk, by the way, if it came to that, um, they may become extremely dependent on China. When I talk about cost of benefits that Mr. Putin has to balance, this is one of them. Because falling into the warm embrace of Mr. Xi, who is a thousand pound gorilla, compared to Mr. Putin's, you know, uh, you know, a hundred pound gorilla, is most certainly not what Mr. Putin would have ideally liked to have in a world where he hadn't created the mess he created now, the catastrophe he created with the war in Ukraine. It is a poisonous embrace. And in geostrategic terms, it is something that I think we should be thinking hard and analyzing ourselves as well, of where this might take him. So do I think he is thinking about those things? I don't know. I think he's in a state, frankly, that is difficult to quite describe mentally, because nothing that is happening now makes sense other than to promote a perverted grand vision of a Russia that simply represses and controls an environment for no other reason other than to control and repress it. Because if the issue with Mr. Putin was really security concerns, this could have been negotiated very easily, perhaps not to his liking all the way because we have security concerns with him, as you can imagine, and you see now with Ukraine. But it could have been negotiated. We tried. We were open. We made proposals. We were ready to talk about where one stations missiles and whether Ukraine would ever have missiles, which it doesn't have, by the way. And there were no plans for it to have any. So, but to the extent that the people around him, at least, have the capacity to make that economic calculus and that geostrategic calculus, I'd be very interesting to see how this plays out in, uh, in, in the short term even. We'll see. We have a question from what I think is a high school student from Brewer High School in Brewer, Maine. Uh, Omer Khan asks, how do people and governments combat the Russian propaganda machine. Ambassador, you mentioned that some of that propaganda got through to someone who asked you a question on main public radio the other day. Uh, and, and what look, do people I do? I don't mean to, I don't mean to, look, I mean, I, 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 I certainly, I'm one of these people who I'm extremely careful not to term someone who disagrees with me as brainwashed or bad mm. or whatever. I never do this, right? In this particular instance, though, of Russia telling the world over and over again, that Ukraine is a fascist country is remarkable because the evidence is so against it. Although, of course, as I said, there are, you know, Nazi thinkers in Ukraine and they are in the U.S. and they are in Europe, right? So that is where you just have to wonder what it is that we are doing wrong. Well, certainly we have open and free media. Is that a wrong thing? Absolutely not. You don't have it in Russia. So what we are discussing here is not going to play back in, 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 uh, in the Kremlin. Uh, many Russian people will never be able to hear those, you know, what we're discussing and the arguments that I'm making, uh, that Mr. Zelensky actually is Jewish and that the uh, extreme right-wing party got 6.4% of the world. But the consequences of what Mr. Putin is doing is going to be, are going to be so extreme also on his people that eventually uh, he will have to explain to them why it is that this delusion of grandeur and this violence that attempts to append the security order in the world is something that they should be proud of. And this may take a little time. I know this. I acknowledge this. But, you know, this is a short game and it's a long game.
Now, when it comes to propaganda, we in Europe identified this as a real issue, however, years ago, and the disinformation campaign. And because we are free and open societies, we have ensured that our laws and regulations provide for some extremely dangerous speech to be that, that can incite to violence and hatred, to be um, limited. And we have also ensured that because the vast majority of this information is not capable of killing people, this information on COVID could, but the vast majority is not necessarily illegal per se, but it is supremely dangerous. We have set up a whole system, a disinformation center, if you like, at our own State Department, in which we collect all the information, disinformation that is around on different topics of interest, and then we generate the real facts and the arguments so that people have access to them, so that people who wish to read can actually read the counter-arguments. Now, are we being effective when it comes to Russia population? I don't, I don't know. I, I doubt that we are being dramatically effective because the media there is so extremely controlled. But are we being effective, Americans and Europeans in this crisis, in warning our citizens that this was not something that we pushed or anyone pushed Mr. Putin in doing, that this was his grand plan that began in 2014 when Ukraine posed zero danger to him, even theoretical, because, because they had zero weapons, defensive weapons on it. And he nevertheless attacked and took it over. And then, in a remarkable, uh, you know, flipping logic on its head, claimed that Ukraine had no right to defend itself after that. And if it actually brought in some defensive capabilities, then it was threatening Russia. Hmm. So it should not have that no defense. So if Russia decided after Ukraine to take something else, it should be able to just do it. And with Ukraine saying, thank you, master. That information has gone out. When we told people that they are planning an invasion, that this is not just an exercise, that this is not Mr. Putin serious about negotiating, that he was truly planning an invasion that we saw happening because our offers to negotiate, in fact, were rejected because that offer from Russia was entirely fake. But I hope that the people, at least in our societies, realize what's happening here. And I believe that people in Russia increasingly will as well. Stavros Lambernidis, Ambassador of the European Union to the United States, thank you for your wisdom and your time with us. This <laughs> thank you very much. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. This week, we are featuring talks from the 2022 Camden Conference, Europe Challenged, at home and abroad. Featured speakers are exploring the adversities Europe faces. Today was a talk with Ambassador Stavros Lambernidis. The extended version of this discussion, including questions from the audience, is available at camdenconference.org, as well as all of the 2022 Camden Conference talks and panel discussions. This program was pre-recorded on Friday, February 25th, 2022 for broadcast at this time. If you missed part of this program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, A.G. Kimaladu. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.